0: Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June 21st and 22nd. Join expert solar and storage analysts for discussions with leading grid-scale utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers. How is the IRA catapulting the development of solar and storage in North America? How can we continue to build a productive environment for solar and energy storage as we move forward with the energy transition? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations, and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage in the coming decades. If you're interested in sponsoring or attending, find out more at woodmac.com events.
1: When I'm asked what's the most interesting sector to focus on right now when it comes to climate change and business, my answer is, is, is hydrogen. We're on a cusp of a sector that has a potential to be extraordinarily large. With the enormous number of unknowns, uncertainties associated
0: with it, and for business people, that's really interesting. This is the interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. In 2022, worldwide investment in renewables hit almost half a trillion dollars. Investment in solar, the largest sector, jumped 36% to $308 billion. Investment in wind, the second largest, remained stable at $175 billion. Overall investment in the energy transition topped $1.1 trillion. This was driven largely by China's investment in renewables, making up 55% of the world's energy investment. The amount invested in new renewable projects is at the highest level in history, but it's still not enough. For us to achieve net zero by 2050, it's estimated we need between 3 to $5 trillion a year going into the industry. On The Interchange today, we look at the four horsemen of the energy transition. Solar, wind, nuclear, and hydrogen. Where is the money going in these sectors? Where does it need to go to accelerate adoption and scalability? What barriers are inhibiting investment and stopping us getting to the level we need to be at?
2: Pushing out money fast, of course, yes. We also need to realize it's basically impossible to tighten standards after the fact. Loosening them? Of course. Right? So, you know, sort of the whiteboard version of how this green hydrogen tax credit could work. You write the tightest possible standards initially. Well, if nobody applies, if nobody wants them, okay, you tighten them ever so slightly. And you keep going until you find the right balance. Going the other way? Virtually impossible. That's Granat Wagner,
0: he's a climate economist and senior lecturer at Columbia University. China may dominate when it comes to investment in renewables, but the IRA, which we've discussed a lot on this show and our sister podcast, The Energy Gang, has lit a path for the US to follow. Subsidies to the tune of $369 billion over the next decade will encourage local renewable energy production. They'll mobilize private investment dollars focused on cutting greenhouse gas pollution.
1: Today I look at the landscape, particularly around renewables, and I say that is the biggest challenge we face in the coming years. It's not the economics, it's not the subsidies, it's not the supply chain, it's not the availability of capital, which is now there. The number one issue we face is our ability to actually build projects in this country.
0: That's Bruce Usher. Bruce also joins us on the show today to explore the flows of capital going into the energy transition. He's also a professor at Columbia and lectures as director of the Tamer Center for Social Enterprise at Columbia's Business School. Power generation needs to more than triple by 2050. In 2020, gross electricity generation stood at 27 petawatt hours, with 62% coming from fossil fuels. By 2050, under a 1.5 degree scenario, we'll need almost 90 petawatt hours, 90% of which come from renewables. Technologies such as CCUS, geothermal, and wave power will play their part, but we need the four main renewable energy sources to run as efficiently as possible and get the investment they need. Let's find out how we can get there. Good out, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Bruce, welcome. Thank you, David would love to just get a little bit of a background uh, on your careers in energy and now as academics. So Gerda, why don't I start with you?
2: Sure. Climate economist. I don't think I've ever done anything else in my life, (laughs) but uh, so yeah, so so 25 years ago, there was basically an oxymoron. You did one or the other, not both. Um, And I can tell you, so early days, uh, sorry, did my... PhD. Um, I wrote for the Financial Times editorial board uh, right out of uh, grad school, spent some time at BCG, worked for Environmental Defense Fund, and always focused on climate energy and the economics of it all. And yeah, right there was sort of 20-ish years ago Obama era policy push and so on, lots of emphasis on the sort of stuff we still need to do. To unleash clean tech, green tech, um, you know, lean, mean, uh, energy efficiency, and so on. Very different from where we are today. Um, we're right global clean energy race. It's about channeling stuff in the right direction as opposed to basically, OMG, right? How do we get started here? At this point, it's about still using basically the same ideas, the same logic, frankly, right? Pricing the bad, subsidizing the good. Guiding stuff in the right direction.
0: Bruce, how about you?
1: So i have completely a uh, different career path. I started in uh, finance, working uh, in the late 80s in Tokyo uh, and in structured capital markets and then moving to New York to the same, got an MBA and then went back into, in, uh, onto Wall Street again. And in the mid to late 90s, I joined a colleague uh, in the finance industry to start a financial services boutique. Had nothing to do with the environment or climate change. Uh, that was a successful uh, business that we grew. And then with, uh, with my colleagues backing, I started a, a second financial company, this time more focused on software and technology. This was the late 90s when, uh, when the whole financial services industry was, was transitioning towards technology. And that company was acquired in 2001. So at that point in my career, I sort of stepped back and thought about, okay, what comes next? All, all I knew was finance and, and growing, uh, growing small businesses in the financial sector. And I... Began to learn about climate change. And I'll be honest, I didn't have an environmental background or think we had an issue that I was aware of or or cared about. But I learned pretty quickly that this intersection of finance and this, what was then described as an environmental or economic issue, but today I'd say is really more of a business issue, that there was a real intersection there, that you need capital, you need investment to reduce emissions. And so in 2002, I joined my third early stage business uh, startup, uh, which Became the world's largest investor in emission reduction projects and the carbon credit space. And we grew that business uh, very quickly. It actually went public in 2005 and was acquired by, um, by J.P. Morgan's Commodities uh, in 2009. And at that point, I, uh, again, stepped back from my career and sort of took the long lens and thought about what's, what's next for me. And uh, what was next was, was a career transition from business to academia. And a few years later, I became a, a full-time academic and, and I've been at Columbia for, for about a decade now. And um, it's been a really, really terrific uh, career switch for me and, and tremendous opportunity.
0: Well, great. I'm really excited you guys are joining the show and, and wanted to talk about a couple of different technologies as it relates to the energy transition and, and get your views on Where things stand, what's being impactful, maybe what more can be done. Thought I'd start off with hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen is something that we continue to hear a lot about. It's gained a ton of traction. Whether it's talking to industry players or the financial services companies, investment banks, private equity firms, they're all wanting to know more about hydrogen. So Gernot, why don't I start
2: with you? But why is hydrogen becoming such a hot topic these days? Because it's a technology that in many ways has seen rapid improvement. Right. Costs are coming down. And, and this is, uh, you know, that's sort of where the policy comes in. It's probably the most generous tax credit, uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, 45V um, is that particular provision. Um, And actually, uh, depends on when you're listening to us, it's sort of either sort of any minute now or not that long ago that it was basically U.S. Treasury, IRS, setting the direction whether this is hundreds of billions of dollars, but I would say pointing in the right direction, looking at hydrogen to play a major role in decarbonizing some of the hard to abate industrial sectors and frankly, ringing in a true revolution. Or, in many ways, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of boondoggles that sort of akin to uh, corn ethanol, right, which we basically can't get rid of. It's increasing emissions, our subsidies of corn ethanol, increasing emissions overall. And, well, as long as presidential primaries start in a particular state, or as long as that state is, right, Iowa is, uh, is among the first ones, Uh, We're just never going to get rid of it. And yeah, it's a big decision coming down the line. There's also lots of pitfalls beyond this. There is also, of course, good reason to be very, very bullish about the set of technologies that, frankly, we know need to play a role. And in many ways, we are sort of early stage where, you know, maybe solar PV was 40 or so years ago. Nobody knew that we would be cutting costs by a factor of 100 within 40 years. But for hydrogen, we can sort of look, to, look at this learning curve. Um, sliding down the cost curve is certainly something we can fully expect to be doing, guided by policy, hopefully pointing in the right direction.
0: So there's a lot of different pieces to hydrogen. I mean, there's obviously the infrastructure, there's the use cases, there's the electrolysis piece. Bruce, where are you seeing the money coming in for hydrogen and what kind of areas is it really focused on, or is it kind of across the board? When I'm asked what's the most interesting sector to focus
1: on right now, when it comes to climate change and business, my answer is, is, is hydrogen. And the reason for that is we're on a cusp of a sector that has a potential to be extraordinarily large with an enormous number of unknowns, uncertainties associated with it. And for investors and business people, that's really interesting because we don't yet know which technologies are going to dominate. We don't yet know which companies are going to be the winners uh, in this new sector. And it could turn out that, in fact, no one wins. So this could turn out not to be an important sector when it comes to decarbonizing the global economy, or it could turn out to be a you know major, major component of it because of all the ways that hydrogen can be used uh, in the economy. So so it's very rare in one's business career that you're sort of on the cusp of those changes, and that's where we are when it comes to hydrogen. The question is, which part of the sector is getting investment today? It appears to be across the board at this point. So obviously technologies, electrolyzers, trying to drop down the cost, electrolyzers, that learning curve process. Uh, We're still pretty early in that process. We're starting to see some insights on cost declines. Uh, The second area we're starting to see is actually development of projects, projects to produce either green or blue hydrogen, um, since you're leaning a little more towards green where the excitement is, but, but in both cases, but the really, the real tremendous unknown here is around the business models. And so you see companies in the oil and gas sector, you know, incumbent firms, you see chemical companies, transport companies, of course, electrolyzer companies themselves, they're all tackling this with different business models. And it's unclear at this point, which of those models will be successful. And lastly, I would add, it's a global phenomenon. So some of these other technologies we saw develop, say wind and solar, they sort of started in one region, became cost competitive in, in that region, usually due to government subsidies, and then sort of made their way globally. Hydrogen, things are moving much faster. So you're seeing companies and projects leap into pretty much every major economy of the world today as some hydrogen project kind of development.
0: So really interesting, a lot of excitement, a lot of uncertainty around it though. And Bruce, where's a lot of that investment coming from? I mean, one of the challenges is you say that we're on the cusp, and from a, you know the banks have all these green initiatives and lending to support the climate initiatives, but you also, they're regulated entities, right? And, and they like established companies that can hit certain financial metrics. But, and so that kind of leaves a gap when you're on the cusp of developing the technology. So where are you seeing most of that investment coming from?
1: The investment is coming primarily from... Corporate and venture capitals, a corporate VC and venture uh, capital, because it is still very early stage, very relatively risky businesses. This is not the world of project finance yet. So what has really changed the economics of investing around hydrogen is is what my colleague Gernot referred to. Uh, you know, the inflation Reduction Act's uh, incentives around hydrogen really changed the numbers. So you have a you have a technology that's simply not competitive. With using natural gas to produce hydrogen, to with the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies, it's essentially a push at this point. I mean, you can you can produce with subsidies down around a dollar a kilo. That's what I'm being told. At that point, you know this becomes an investable business, but it's still it's still early. It's really still the realm of project finance. Excuse me, venture finance.
2: how have you seen the IRA impact the hydrogen industry? I mean, frankly, at this point, there is a lot of uncertainty what actually, what gets subsidized, right? And uh, what we see is basically, well, it's the usual jockeying for positions at the usual um, lobbying, if you will. Lobbying very hard on the one hand, right? You have legacy industry of utilities, uh, utilities with existing generation capacity, basically saying, let's tap into this tax credit to subsidize our existing, what it's nuclear generation capacity, which may in fact lead to, right, low carbon production, hydrogen, or the sort of, I guess, oil and gas, right, looking at hydrogen to basically utilize, mobilize their existing capacity and get subsidized to fund the transition. If you're good at pipelines, if you're good at pumping, uh, if you're good at sort of moving large quantities of liquid, um, these are literally tens, hundreds of billions of dollars waiting for the tick. On the other end, yeah, you have environmentalists, for I would say very good reason, say, look, this is such a generous subsidy, this is such a big pot of money that we can afford to set standards that would, in fact, lead to actual emissions reductions here. That would use the green hydrogen tax credit, 45v, and just the green hydrogen tax credit, not any of the other stuff, to be a boon to renewables generation, right? Wind, solar, uh, or low carbon in general, right? Uh, new nuclear capacity, for that matter, simply because of the generosity of the green hydrogen tax credit, that would make new additional solar wind low carbon capacity be uh, like pay for itself many times over if you will and this sort of jockeying for positions here to see that whatever right whatever your pet peeve is uh, gets subsidized is probably one of the more consequential decisions we'll be looking at in coming days or, or or weeks potentially And it's really hard to see how to change that once the decision's been made, right? Maybe that's sort of the key point here, right? You know, we we often talk about lock-in of, uh, you know, dirty old uh, high-carbon infrastructure. Well, we certainly have a lot of lock-in in in any kind of infrastructure. And yeah, it's the, the clean hydrogen, clean production capacities that equally get locked in. And of course, if they are not quite as clean as they could be, or subsidize old legacy infrastructure, it's just impossible to see how you can get rid of it once they are put in place.
1: So the way the, the inflation reduction act designed, it's, it's certainly uh, there's potential for abuse and, and how hydrogen, green hydrogen in particular, is produced. And are we using new build renewables or existing renewables? And does that channel, you know, power away from, from the grid? My perspective on it is it may not matter at this point, and it may be really hard to design it otherwise. In other words, the challenge I see with renewables at the moment is less about competitiveness of renewables, and I'm putting wind and solar in that category right now, and more about our ability to rapidly build new projects out there today, particularly around permitting and and interconnect. And so we're trying to do, we're trying to bunch of things at once here right we're trying to scale up renewable power production we're trying to make sure we can balance the intermittency of that we're trying to develop an entirely new industry then that green and potentially blue hydrogen industries and we're also trying to roll out electric vehicles and the reason why i, I, I mentioned all of these is they're all connected right all these industries actually are not in silos they're all connected to each other and my belief is that you don't want to try to refine any of those industries too much early on. You can certainly make mistakes along the way. And and as Girona pointed out, uh, corn ethanol is a classic example of that. But at this point, we simply need to do more faster. In other words, the technologies behind these industries are pretty clear. It's the actual ability to build and scale quickly. That's the biggest challenge I see today. And by putting in more restrictions around what doesn't does not qualify, by putting in more restrictions, say, around permitting or interconnect, it's going to take what is already a pretty massive challenge, scaling all this up fast enough to, uh, you know, essentially to get to net zero within three decades. My inclination is, is is just to let it run as fast and hard as it can and try to course correctly later on. Now, there's risks to that, political risks around that, but uh, I would tend to lean that direction.
0: And so, what are your thoughts on what can be done, whether it's policy-wise, investment-wise, to help as we as we accelerate that build out and do it the right way? What incentives do you think should be put in place? And I use incentives across the board, right? It's just what can be done to help drive that investment and growth? So this so this interesting
1: situation where we we spend years trying to make sure that the government you know pushes more more regulations to to incentivize a shift towards clean energy and and decarbonizing. And I think this is a case where the government, particularly the federal government, uh, in fact, does need to reduce regulations around permitting interconnect and any other barriers to transmission to installation of clean energy. Now, there's limitations, right? We can't just have a completely open free-for-all. That's not going to work, particularly uh, in our legal system, which is very litigious. But at the moment, it's simply too slow and too hard to permit Many, um, some certain parts of the country, nearly all projects. There's so many examples at the moment where it's not taking months or years, but sometimes decades to get projects permitted. And these are projects that are competitive; they're economically beneficial. Really, the only barriers is that. Now, that's not an easy thing for the federal government to do, as obviously states' rights. We've got a very complex energy system. I <laughs> have 50 50 different states. But today, I look at the landscape, particularly around renewables, and I say that is the biggest challenge we face in the coming years. It's not the economics. It's not the subsidies. It's not the supply chain. It's not the availability of capital, which is now there. The number one issue we face
2: is our ability to actually build projects in this country. Maybe to chime in here. So, of course, right? So, the task is to build, build, build. And this is sort of the, I mean, frankly, across the political aisle, right? So of course, you know, nuance matters here. And sort of, you know, as soon as you devil is in the detail, right, all the usual phrases apply. Um, I guess one of the big points here, and uh, Bruce already uh, uh, mentioned this uh, very explicitly is, right? So on the one hand, it's incumbent on the federal government, right, to get things going. On the other, frankly, most of the barriers are at the state and local level. And maybe just to use sort of a a very, actually sort of a consumer-focused example of this. Um, So when the Inflation Reduction Act, the aptly named Inflation Reduction Act passed, right, August 16th, last year, lots of excitement about the sort of the direct consumer subsidies, right? Oh, you get $8,000 for your heat pump and $2,400 to upgrade your electric system to install the heat pump and so on and so forth. None of that money uh, has changed hands yet. So the rules are still being written. At the Department of Energy, on the one hand, and even when that's concluded, none of the money is going to be spent at the federal level. Um these are tax rebates, so it's at the at the state level, right? So now you're looking at fifty state governments to be ramping up their capacity to be writing their rules. and right? And yeah, they are administratively capable states, like you know sort of the large coastal states, basically, right? California, New York, Connecticut, and so on, Massachusetts. Um, that clearly have the, the machinery built to basically be pushing the money out fast. Well, for them too, it takes months to get the stuff right. All right, So yeah, we have the IRA, but it's certainly not decreasing inflation right now, based on the sort of consumer subsidies, we just saw of the EV. tax credits, um, uh, those rules being written, and again, right? nine months after the fact. Um, and of course, for larger infrastructure projects. Uh, the delay is only going to be uh, longer, right? And sort of permitting reform writ large, of course, is a huge undertaking. It is certainly incumbent on, on the federal government and then government at every level to get things going, to frankly use the money to push through some of these uh, you know, local pores and widen those pores right? to be able to spend more money fast. So I think that's one. Second bit, and this is, I guess, a a small disagreement with you, Bruce, on the sort of just the political economy of this, right? So pushing out money fast, of course, yes. We also need to realize it's basically impossible to tighten standards after the fact. Loosening them? Of course, right? So, you know, sort of the, you know, maybe whiteboard version of how this green energy, uh, green hydrogen tax credit could work, right? You sort of, you, you read the tightest possible standards initially. Well, if nobody applies, if nobody wants them, okay, you tighten them ever so slightly. And you keep going until you find the right balance. Going the other way? Virtually impossible. I'm with you
1: on that, up The political economy around this is, is really the hard part, All right. I mean, going back to when I got involved with, with climate change uh, 20 years ago, David, you know, we... We didn't have the technologies to decarbonize in any way, right? Renewables was incredibly expensive. EVs didn't exist. I mean, a few golf carts, there was nothing. It was a joke. Uh, I can tell you the capital didn't exist then either because I was working in finance, you know, financing projects. We didn't have cheap capital. We barely had capital at all. And so on and so on. Today, we live in a completely different world when it comes to decarbonizing and climate change. We have the technologies. We have the capital. What has not gotten better, in fact, it's gotten better worse, I'd say, is generalization in the last few decades is, is the politics of climate change. And, and to Grunot's point, I couldn't agree more. It's hard enough passing policy. It's even harder passing good policy today. And improving upon existing policy is really hard to do. And when, when you say tightening, I think what you really mean is improvements upon it. And Sally, that's, that is true. And I, I agree with you on that point.
0: So hydrogen is something that, I mean, we could spend multiple episodes talking about. It's fascinating and I'm excited to see where it's going, but I wanted to switch over to to discuss solar. And Gernot, I'll I'll start with you, but where are you seeing the new, or how much of the new investment into the renewable space are you seeing going into solar? Uh, I mean, we've seen solar costs come down significantly over the past several years. And just
2: curious what you're seeing on the investment side. I guess, you know, sort of a couple of Canonical facts, right? And yes, right, we all know that right. solar costs have come down a factor of 100 within 40 years, factor of 10 within uh, a decade. And yes, I, IEA, International Energy Agency, when they call solar the cheapest form of electricity in history, right, uh, it's not wishful thinking. And by the way, that was like three years or so. I guess a couple of things. So one, last year, solar costs did increase, right, for the first time in a long time. In absolute terms. But, well, fossil prices increased even more. So basically the one thing that matters, right? The relative comparison, solar got even cheaper, even faster last year, after February 24th, after the invasion, right, than ever before. So I guess key point there is solar in fact is a technology as opposed to a commodity. Yes, there are you know, precious minerals and so on and some commodities going into. The panels but at the end of the day it acts and feels and looks like a technology and technologies can only get better right capacity factors up costs down the second bit uh, um uh so this is not my own analysis and i i wish to remember whom to credit with this one but uh so this direct solar coal comparison i said 210 coal plants left in this country in the us and not just that Yes, of course, if you were to start over and if coal capacity weren't locked into contracts at right, PPAs, power purchasing agreements, 20 years plus and so on. Um, but even now, right, so, so sorry, in that case, right, you would clearly go for solar, right? It's sort of, well, it's the cheapest form of electricity. Okay, let's do it. Um, but until very recently, you wouldn't have shut down the existing plant. It wouldn't have been economic to shut down the existing plant. Right? Once the coal plant is in the ground, yeah, it's you wouldn't build a new one, but uh, it's still cheaper to operate than to start over and replace it with solar capacity. Well, out of the 210 coal plants operating in this country, as we speak, 208 or 209, it would actually pay to shut them down, replace them with solar. Just a purely economic perspective. Now, you're not doing that. Right? Some sort of very good technical reasons, right? But then, of course, it's regulation pointing in the wrong direction, right? Long-term contracts very guarantee uh, high returns on the old existing locked-in infrastructure. Okay, so to your question, right? So where does the money go? Where is the money going? Amazingly enough, uh, sort of just from global statistics, right? The hundreds of billions of dollars a year that do go into clean tech as we speak. It is the vast majority of it is going into uh, into the two big ones, right? Into solar and wind. Most of it, solar. It's boring. It's certainly not sexy, right? It's not. Oh my God, green hydrogen, right? Uh, small modular reactors. Uh, you know, shiny object over there. It's sort of the heart's lodge of basically deploying, 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 uh, deploying technologies that we know how to do as we speak, but it's happening. And it's happening globally. Alright, so we can make fun of Germany all we want and their sort of asinine nuclear policy, right? Shutting down nukes this month while keeping coal around for I think twenty thirty six or twenty thirty eight or so, when the last coal plant is scheduled to go offline in Germany. But what they are doing is adding solar, subsidizing solar up to Wazoo, adding solar fast. And by the way, that's Germany, right? Nobody's idea of a particularly sunny place. So, no, it doesn't make sense to do it from a global perspective, right? Um, you know, subsidize it in Germany and, you know, nobody, nowhere else, which of course isn't happening. But uh, the fact that it is happening, that there is so much money going into solar, even in Northern Germany, right, is just the side of uh, it's not a question of if; it's a question of right. How fast do we go? Um, and yes, of course, we still need to go a lot faster than we currently are.
1: Let me just say, Gernot, that some solar is still pretty exciting and thirsty. It's not all bored. <laughs> but uh, you're right. This guy's very large, and then that makes it somewhat dull. But hey, you know, a lot of the investments going into balance of systems, right? The cost of panels becomes so low. And uh, in the balance of systems, you do some really interesting developments and interesting investments. Uh, you know, Increased number of panels are now bifacial. So you're generating power from above and below, which is hard to imagine, but it actually increases power up from 7 to 12% just doing that. The tracking systems are getting much more efficient and better. And uh, an area that I'm really interested in, and, and there's just a full disclosure, I'm an investor in a company that Uh, use the robotics for installation of large-scale projects. So you think about how do you build a utility scale is where the real low costs are on solar. And the big problem is the labor uh, that it takes to actually install these, you know, the posts and the panels. Well, there are some various advanced robotics systems that are being developed to do exactly that and drive down costs. Their objective is to get the cost of of generating power from uh, solar down to $10 a megawatt hour. Um, within several years and in areas with high insulation they're not far off from that they actually just helped develop a project in Qatar obviously a lot of cheap land in the desert and it's pretty sunny at about $16 a megawatt hour so now you're talking about really really low energy prices and that is pretty exciting which brings us to the other point that got raised about coal plants I completely agree you know there's a lot of concern about coal plants both operating, but also new coal plants have built, particularly in China. And that's something to be worried about when it comes to climate change. You build out coal plants and then burn coal. That doesn't make our situation any better. But there's good reason to believe that many of those plants are going to get stranded not too many years from now. And because the coal plants might be cheap to build, they still got to burn coal. And at some point, the price of solar just undercuts it. Because the big advantage that solar has over pretty much any other form of, of energy generation, whether it's power or even other forms, is that it's so highly distributable. We don't have anything else where you can use it, you know, a tiny little panel if you just need a if you just need a couple of watts of power, up to millions and millions of panels if you want gigawatts of power, and everything in between, and every format and every part of the world, there really is nothing else like it. And that's why over time, I think solar is going to dominate the power mix. Wind will be very important, potentially offshore wind. But ultimately, solar is our best energy source available and it will be in the future. To Gernot's point, technology only gets better.
0: On that point, Gernot, I'm curious. You wrote an article a while ago that was talking about the investment in solar and how a number of years ago, the majority of the investment was going into R&D and less on economies of scale. And now that's almost kind of evened out. And usually when you see that investment going to economies of scale, you almost see the technology and development have, has run its course. And now you look at scaling up. So what do you think is driving that, given the fact that you know, technology-wise, we still have you know, more to go on the development of solar?
2: We have more to go and I stand corrected. So installing solar panels with robots is pretty sexy. Um, (laughs) So uh, yes, right? Lots of new uh, technological improvements. I think sort of the point of that particular piece was on the, basically, the positive externality that deserves to be subsidized, right? So initially, right, 40 years ago to sort of 20-ish years ago, yeah, most of the learning was happening for good reason on the research and development front. And hence, it was incumbent upon the rest of us to be subsidizing that basic R&D. Versus right about now, when you look at the, at the research, development, deployment, demonstration, diffusion, there's a bunch of these to go. We are way down the list at this point. Right? Um, and especially it's learning by doing. You know, That's the big one right? And it actually, it truly is, right? So yes, plenty of uh, learning still to be done on the uh, on the research and development front. And, you know, let's tease out all these efficiencies and frankly, subsidize the positive spillovers, of course. But the real gains uh, seem to be on the scaling, seem to be on the learning by doing front, right? This is sort of the Rooftop solar, right? let's let start with that, right not not the most efficient way to install solar, right? So there's you know utility scale, uh, much higher capacity, and so on. but yeah, you know, zoom in on any Google map image, right anywhere basically, and you see plenty of potential right plenty of roofs uh that could or should uh have solar panels on them, and often it's the basically lack of imagination, if you will, lack of capacity on the deployment front. And by the way, every chain here, right? So it's not just, you know, the roofer doesn't know how to install the panel. No, it's basically the financing isn't there, right? The homeowner doesn't know how to do it. Um, there is no, right, sort of help with sort of the the simple, the pace financing system where sort of on-bill repayment type stuff, right? Where you as the homeowner sort of don't care that there is now a solar panel. All you see is that the electricity uh, bill just got uh, lower as a result, And it's all being paid for automatically third party. And so now learning by doing is precisely this idea of, okay, well, the first time the roofer touches a solar panel, right? Doesn't know which way is up. Um, The hundredth thousandth millionth solar panel is a lot cheaper to install. And that is all about scale, right? This is all about basically, well, contractor knowing that it exists, contractor knowing how to do it, contractor getting good at it, and frankly, contractor being so good as it, to want to beat out the competition and basically you know, try to sell you the solar panel, right? Sort of refuse to do the roof unless you add solar panels to the mix, right? And this is sort of, that's the learning curve, if you will, learning curve for everybody, right? Homeowners, contractors, uh, manufacturers, of course. And it's heavily, heavily tilted toward the learning by doing stuff where scale truly matters.
0: So Bruce, you mentioned wind earlier. What are your thoughts on wind, whether onshore, offshore, eh, compared to some of the other technologies such as, as solar? I mean, where do you see that fitting in just an overall cost standpoint, growth opportunities, deployment? How do you see that in comparison?
1: Wind has and will continue to have an incredibly important role. Right? It's gone from pretty much 0% to about a little less than 10% generation here in the U.S. and a number of other countries. So that's, that's pretty extraordinary in, in, in a little over a decade. But it does have some challenges that solar does not have. Obviously, they're both intermittent. Wind has the advantage of slightly higher capacity factors, so that's advantageous. The problem with wind is it only works in large configuration. Those configurations are almost always far from population zones, since we tend not to live in really windy places. So you get the problem of transmission lines and transmission capacity, and this is where... Yeah, you know, it becomes really problematic uh, to, to add transmission lines rapidly, particularly in the U.S. Also the same in Europe, by the way. And then the question of, of offshore wind becomes pretty interesting because you get higher capacity factors. You've got, obviously, a great deal of space to put turbines. But here you have two problems. One is, is that the cost of installing wind offshore really is prohibitively high. And it's unclear. The, the learning curves there, they exist, but they're much slower. It's just incredible incredibly harsh environment to put assets at work, particularly if, in, if you're in a water more than 200 feet deep. The vast majority of the world's offshore wind today is in the North Sea, because it's a fairly shallow sea. There's a lot of experience with uh, offshore oil, oil and gas uh, platforms out there. But there's not a lot of North Seas in the world. And we look at the U.S., the coast tends to drop off pretty fast. So Now you talk about floating wind turbines. Again, technologically feasible, and a number of them are under development today. But we don't, see, we don't see large projects uh, coming out of line Break. A long way of saying, I expect wind's going to be a really important part of the mix, partly because of the intermittency of wind tends to offset the intermittency of solar. Not exactly, but they have a nice sort of simpatical relationship. Partly because in certain parts of the country, say off Hawaii, where you don't have a lot of great options, you're going to see a, a lot more offshore wind. But the cost curves are not going to be down as quickly as they them to be.
0: Right, how about you? What what are your thoughts on wind in the overall kind of energy transition chain?
2: May I just agree with Bruce violently on everything he says? That? So so basically there's some good reasons to believe that okay, so offshore wind is a prime example, right? So most of us live along along the coasts or you know large population centers happen to be along the coast. Let's take that as a given. Impossible often, very, very difficult often to build something close to. Large population centers, right? Massive new enfra- energy infrastructure. So, you know, so that makes onshore difficult and onshore, any kind of onshore, basically, right? Okay, so no offshore wind may not be the cheapest form of electricity in isolation, but given those characteristics, yes, major role, major potential new role, right? I mean, all you need to do is, you know, walk through Times Square right about now and look at the Sort of 16-story-high billboards where Equinor boasts about winning the bid uh, for for offshore wind uh, right off the coast of Long Island, right? And uh, forgot the details now of the the billboard, but you know this billboard will soon be powered by uh, by our wind turbine offshore, right? That's exciting. That's amazing. Is that very rarely is it possible, frankly, right, for a city like New York, right? or you know the 20 million of us or so who live in the, the the larger area where you say, okay, we're building something new here, generating our own power. Now, not that that's the most important thing, right? It would be nice if we were able to build the massive new transmission lines to crisscross the country. and yes, we should be doing that too but offshore wind truly has a large role to play precisely because it's possible to site near, very close to, large population centers.
0: So Bruce, nuclear energy, and I know I'm, I'm obviously covering a lot of different aspects here, but wanted to also touch on the renaissance that's going on in nuclear energy. I mean, w- when you look at it standalone, I mean, it's a clean source of energy. Yes, it, it's got some history and, and, and some you know, bad rap about it. But I mean, when you look at emissions compared to others in total, and yes, there's the, the nuclear waste. What do you think is driving this renaissance? And what are your overall thoughts about nuclear playing a key part going forward?
1: Dave, let me preface my comments here by saying that I'm sometimes criticized for being very optimistic about technologies and decarbonization, our ability to avoid catastrophic climate change. But when it comes to nuclear, I'm not that optimistic. And, and, and let me explain why. I want to be. I think nuclear is safe. And statistically speaking, it's, it's perhaps the safest form of, of power generation on the planet. Um, there's no question. It's, it's zero, you know, virtually zero emissions. It's base load power. There's an awful lot to like about nuclear that I like. My concern about nuclear is, is really just one issue, but it's a big one. And it's the economics of the nuclear. And of course, if we look at the economics of traditional loop nuclear today, They're pretty poor. And the only place in the U.S. building new nuclear at the moment is is down in Georgia, the Vodal. Plants down there, and they're massively over budget and an extraordinarily expensive way of producing power. You could build just about anything. Would be cheaper than that. Now, the real question is new developments in in nuclear, and that's where the excitement is. That's where a lot of investment is being made. And there's a lot of excitement around fusion. I won't even talk about fusion, partly because I think it's... It's just way too far off, and and it's too complex for me to even think about too far in the future. But when it comes to fission, we've got these new SMR technologies. And now this is where it gets pretty interesting. And I want to believe that SMR nuclear is going to be an important part of the mix in the future. Uh, When I say the mix in the future, nuclear is about 20% of global power generation today, and it's been fairly steady, so that's not going away anytime soon. By the way, I think shutting off any nuclear plants a day, unless there's a true, a true risk issue, is, is a big mistake. I agree with Gernot's uh, concern about what's, what's happening in Germany today. But we're talking about new-build nuclear and you know whether that 20% will get expanded. And the challenge with, with SMR nuclear is, despite a, a significant amount of investment and an awful lot of press around it, it's yet to be proven at a commercial scale at a competitive cost. Just last week, uh, Bill Gates um, was in the press, and he's a big supporter of, of SMR Nuclear. He was um, talking about a new plant being built, I think, in, uh, in Wyoming. One of the companies he's backed. And, uh, you know, he's very excited about this technology finally going into a commercial, commercial application. But, in the news that's been released, he's, he's saying that probably it will generate power in 2030. Probably. Which in the energy world means some have to cook. And 2030, that's, that's seven years from now, David. And you know, that's sort of, I think the best case of this is one of the leading SMR, nuclear companies out there today. I guess my perspective on this, David is I, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical that by the time these companies are producing power at a commercial scale, the cost of solar and wind will be so low. We're talking yeah, $10 or $20 a megawatt hour versus the best projections for SMR today are about $58 a megawatt hour. Even with storage, even with intermittency, even with all the other challenges these technologies come with, I don't, I don't know there's going to be a role for nuclear by the time it gets out there. But let me close by saying I would love to be proved wrong about this. Bill Gates and others are incredibly smart people, very focused, um, deep pockets obviously. They're putting their money where their mouth is. So there's a lot going on there. And I would really like to see, I would really like to be proved wrong in on this one.
0: Yeah, we had a, uh, an episode not too long ago about the SMRs. And I mean, you're right. I mean, look, the, in the U.S., uh, most of the nuclear plants are, what, 50, 60 years old uh, just about now. And even new ones globally being built, they're taking twice as long and they're double the budget audit. So I mean, from a cost standpoint, that just the initial investment to get it up and running is is significant. And now maybe with the SMRs, maybe there's, uh, there's a place, but it, but it will be interesting to see how, how nuclear fits within the broader renewable landscape.
2: But uh, Granada, cu- curious as to your thoughts as well on nuclear. I think you just said the key word, right? Uh, within the broader landscape. And to be clear, right? So we've already just made this distinction implicitly Um, Let me just make it very explicit. There's three types of nuclear, and I'm not even including fusion in this. There's keeping old reactors around for longer. There is building new old reactors, right? The massive, large-scale Vogel plant type stuff. And then there's SMR, small modular reactors. And the three are very different economics, very different decisions, right? Sort of keeping old reactors around for longer is sort of the no-brainer, right? Uh, As long as it can be done safely, right? Most of the money was in building the thing in the first place. Uh, So yes, sure, right? That too requires subsidies. That too requires government subsidies. And the fact that 20% of existing power is coming from nuclear, yeah, we probably should be subsidizing, uh, not least from a climate perspective. SMRs on the other end right and by the way the, the sort of building new old reactors right uh, is, is sort of out right um i mean yes there's a couple of these massive ones coming online as we speak uh uh one in finland for example right and yes sure um by the way in a developing country context right a very different equation right uh if you are still building a 50 color plant uh, coal plants uh A year, yeah, you may want to consider replacing one or more, many more of them with massive nuclear uh, stations. The SMR question, right, is, you know, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of hope, and basically it's all about the learning curve, once again, of course, right? Uh, It's not just theoretical, right? Very practical. Uh, If you were able to build, right, many more than one at once, yes, costs would come down massively. And um, frankly, yes, there too are plenty of subsidies, part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and I would say for good reason. Now, back to costs. Seen in isolation, absolutely true. Costs are a massive negative for a nuclear. Seen from a systems level, overall costs may actually be even an advantage. Now, you know, not advantage in the sense that, oh my God, building this project is so expensive, right? But overall systems costs come down if you have renewables plus baseload provided by SMRs, by nuclear, most any energy model you look at, total costs in that scenario are lower than the 100% renewables, than the 100% wind and solar scenario doesn't mean it's going to happen. But yes, even though red solar is a technology and technology costs can only come down, well, the all-in cost of installing solar may actually hit increasing costs at some point, especially, of course, if it's difficult, since it's difficult to build at a massive scale, right? To find all the land near population centers and so on to build. So overall, on balance, nuclear cost from a systems perspective may not look quite as bad doesn't make the individual plant-level economics any easier.
0: So last question before we wrap it up, and uh, Bruce, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. How do you think we're progressing against the targets that we've set, you know, 2035 and 2050? How much progress do you think we've made and are we way behind do we just have a little bit more to go to make up for that just curious
1: i think not bad (laughs) it's a a technical term right not bad and and here's why i said i mean first of all if you look at the actual the actual math of it uh u.s emissions peaked in 2007 since the economy has grown significantly and we're down you know we're, we're we're close to being on the path now that path gets steeper between now and 35, significantly steeper. The projections I've seen that model our path with the Inflation Reduction Act benefits in there show us being on that steeper path. And, and the tricky part here is that the change is not linear, right? In other words, the growth of renewable energy has not been a linear growth. It's been an exponential growth. With the growth in EVs, we have less data on that because it's a newer market. But again, it seems to be starting to show an exponential growth trend and so on. So you got to model out those exponential trends against our emissions trends. I'm easily optimistic about the U.S. path at this point, with the caveat being that, you know, political winds can blow in different directions and really, really screw it up. I'm uh, much more concerned at the global level. Chinese emissions have not yet peaked, though they might very, very soon. And obviously, climate change is, is, a, is a global
2: issue. Okay, so what weekday is it, right? So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm optimistic. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, um, uh, not so much. But look, it is really late in the game, All right? We've been sort of 10 years away from having to, uh, to peak global emissions in order to meet a particular goal. And you know we have kept pushing this up, and when you look at sort of the climate economy models, right, sort of the global massive models, sort of all in, we keep adding more generous assumptions around carbon removal to make the models work, and right to to make them seem realistic, those carbon removal assumptions keep getting added at the back, all right. So by now we are at what ten billion tons of CO two to be sucked out by mid century, as part of sort of the normal pathways. And, you know, well, yeah, there's, you know, lots of excitement in that particular area as well. Are we going to get to 10 billion tons, 10 gigatons uh, within the next 30 years, 25 years? Uh, Well, maybe. But I guess the point is, uh, and this is back to the, you know, the optimism, the excitement, we are at the cusp of this global energy race, right? It's not if, it's when, right? So you know, von der Leyen might be going to DC and talking about sort of complaining about the Inflation Reduction Act. But back home, yeah, Europe just passed a Green New Deal. (laughs) Europe just passed sort of, you know, hundreds of billions of euros, hundreds of billions of dollars in domestic subsidies, mirroring the US version. And by the way, sort of in many ways doing one better, right, in addition to subsidizing also tightening the emissions trading system, expanding the emissions trading system, adding real prices, a ton of CO2, and then back to the US and you see some of the same things. And so just sitting here in New York City, uh, New York State, part of its budget deal passed a ban of fossil fuels in new buildings, right? So no gas stoves, uh, gas furnaces, more significant, of course, the latter, right? So we are sort of, you know, not quite mandating heat pumps, but yeah, pretty darn close, right? So turns out there are better technologies out there than gas furnaces and gas stoves. Uh, There are heat pumps and induction stoves, right? Uh, They're better. They're cheaper. You can literally get your $70 IKEA induction plate if you want to, right? Cheaper than anything else. Better than anything else. And it's happening as we speak that's the excitement. Does it add up to enough? Well, with quite a bit of prodding, quite a bit of pushing, maybe. Hopefully, we are certainly seeing exponential growth, all the good stuff. And yes, we need to keep nudging, keep pushing, keep shoving in that right direction.
0: I'm David Miller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.